as I mentioned to you, it's going to be a stewardship that we have in this little bitty book of prophecy. Also, as I mentioned next week, Josh Longoria will be here, and I hope you all are excited about that. But as we turn our minds to Jonah here, there is not a little kid who hasn't heard the story of Jonah. Everybody knows this story. Churched and unchurched, they've heard something about, oftentimes, Jonah and the whale. And since we know the story like any big fish story, parts of the narrative will actually get twisted. And what was a little six-inch fish becomes an 18-pounder. And so it's important that the church continues to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. It is why Jeremy spent a year and a half going through First and Second Kings to preach all of the counsel of God's word. When you do that, you come to sticky stuff that you go, ah, I'd really rather skip this. But you have to do it because it's in God's word and God wants his saints to know. And this is why we turn to Jonah here in the next six weeks. My hope for myself and for the saints is ultimately the title of this series, and that is the oceanic grace of God. That here as we study this out together, you are going to be blown away by God's great grace. God's grace to a rebellious people, God's grace to a rebellious prophet, God's providence and grace to ignorant lost, God's peculiar provision, grace in our most dire times, a gracious, humble response to God's disciplining hand, God's grace in giving us second chances, God's grace in lessons not learned, God's grace seen in the power of the word despite a crummy microphone. God's doubled grace to a repentant people. God's redoubled grace to a twice rebellious prophet. The power of this grace that we see in this book is the power of the grace of God that is here to us today. We'll start out with usually what's one of my favorite parts of studying a new book, and that's the background. How does all this fit together? Why is this sandwiched in here? Who is this Jonah fellow? The kind of the who, what, why, where, when of a story, kind of a reporter's version. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember the White family, Jeff and Christy White. Right now, their daughter Addison is in Israel, a real place. She is seeing real things. She's sending pictures all the time. The Sea of Galilee. She's been on the Sea of Galilee. She is, has been in Jerusalem at the Western Wall and seen the wall that Herod built, the real Herod. The, the crazy thing about God's word is that it's not a book of fantasies. It is a book of space-time history. God has acted with a people in reality. We know 
that Jonah is a prophet. You go, what's a prophet? Okay, I read the passage in Amos where God speaks to a man to go and speak to other people. He is the conduit of God's word. Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 4 and 5 state, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. God wants his people to hear. He doesn't want them to be in ignorance. Jonah was a real guy. Jonah chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Okay, that that could just be a, a great story, how it starts out when we name my character Jonah. His dad was Amittai. But in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, on March 27th, the sermon that Jeremy preached, he highlighted that Jonah, the son of Amittai, had come to King Jeroboam II, king of Israel. Jeroboam II restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamat, which is way up in the north, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, which is the Dead Sea, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hafer. Gath Hafer, for those of you locals, would be like Burke Burnett, the far north on the border little city up there. So 2 Kings seems to think that this Jonah was a real fellow. Also, Jesus Christ seems to think this Jonah is a real fellow. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, Matthew's gospel reads, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As Jonah was, so I will be. Jesus doesn't speak of this as some mythological children's story. He continues actually in the very next verse and says in, in comparing the repentance of Nineveh to the unrepentance of Israel, Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Not only was Jonah a real person, Nineveh is a real person. That is where God is sending him. Verse 2 of Jonah 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In your mind, if you can imagine where Iraq is, way up north in Iraq, near the Turkish border, is the town of Mosul. 
Mosul is where the ruins of Nineveh are found along the edge of the Tigris River. Non-biblical scholars believe it was the biggest city in the free world in 600 BC. The timing of Jonah's prophecy to it is about 160 years before that. And even then it was a great city as we will see. Now, what we're going to do here, I may often refer to this as a story. Okay, when I say it's a story, I'm not saying it's a fiction. It is a historical narrative. I don't want to sound like a geek by calling it a narrative all the time, but I'll often refer to it as a story. And one of the first things we see in God's call to Jonah is that obedience is expected. God tells him, arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So you go, why Jonah? Well, let's think about this. You know, if you were to look at a map and you go, Israel, Mosul, you go, that's 680 miles. Memphis is only 550 miles from here. It'd take a good, good day's driving to get to Memphis. Okay, he wasn't driving. He was walking. It would take him, if he was doing about, oh, I don't know, three, you know, 30 miles a day or so, um, he's looking at 20 days of walking, a near month to get there. A month. You know, why not call somebody in Nineveh? God has called pagans before to prophesy. That's what he did with Balaam. You know, Balaam prophesied with the Amorites there east of the Jordan. Balaam was a pagan and he prophesied on behalf of God. Why not just call somebody in Nineveh a local? And as we're going to see, as we unfold this, this prophecy, Jonah had his own issues. Calling Jonah to go to Nineveh would be like calling a Jew who became a Christian in 1947 to go back to Germany to prophesy on behalf of the Lord. I don't want to go to those guys. And we're going to see that ultimately with Jonah, that God has called a guy to go preach to the Ninevites who um, hates the Ninevites. Why, why, why would you call Jonah? And in truth, why would God call anyone? Can God not just give a dream or a vision or send an angel? Wouldn't that be easier instead of calling a bucky, rebellious prophet to do your work for you? I mean, you know, the grief that God gets from his own people when he calls them to do their work. But we have to understand that God's purposes are rarely one-dimensional. God isn't merely working with Nineveh. God is also working on a prophet. And God, we're going to see in two weeks, is working on sailors. And he's working on a king. 
and he's working on kids. And he's working on ordinary citizens. He worked on the Jews who were in exile as they read this prophecy. He works on saints today. Understand this. God uses whom he chooses for what he purposes when it suits his timing. Why? I don't know. God uses whom he chooses for what he purposes when it suits his timing. Oftentimes it's, it's hard in the midst of travail not to consider myself the center of the universe. I mean, it's all about me. Why is this bad happening to me? Why is good not happening to me? Why is bad not happening to him? Why is good happening to her? Might God bring something to bear in your life, not exclusively for you, but largely for someone else? We seldom know God's purposes or plans this side of glory. Now, God's word is very clear to Jonah. We've read it twice now. Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for the evil that has come up before me. It's plain as day. Jonah has no doubt about it. Get up, go. Where? Nineveh, great city. What do you do? Call out against it. Stand opposed to it. Why? Because evil has come up against me. I've already talked about where Nineveh is. Go. Okay, dude, that's a long way. All right. Now, what have the Ninevites done? I don't know. Doesn't say. Doesn't specify. But we know that God's judgments are just. Unlike the modern secular who indicts God for doing to sinful humanity as he wishes, we ought to understand that if anybody even draws breath, God is being gracious because he is without requirement to provide oxygen to any. Man is held to an objective, unwavering standard of right and wrong, whether or not they know God's word because he has knit it into the very fabric of their being. That standard is the very holiness of God inherent in the very character of God. So, why is God interested in Nineveh when Israel itself is going to pieces? I mean, the sand in the hourglass is almost completely run out on Israel. That's where they are. You know, they are, they are ramping down the slide to exile. They, you know, this has taken place in about the 760 to 800 BC, 722 BC. Israel is schwacked by Assyria. Well, not only is Israel going to pieces, but Nineveh is going to pieces too. And here's the deal. God cares. God cares. He cares about the lilies of the field. Far more than that, he cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about Sergei on the Kamchatka Peninsula. You know, he cares about the president of the nation of Zambia. 
God cares also not just about people. He cares about nations and how the nations conduct themselves, which is why it is important for saints to be involved in government. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3. Table that for a while. So God calls Jonah to obey. When? Yesterday. Now. When it's off my lips, go. Do that. Go. Now. We were created in his image. We know. We hear. We understand. We understand right and wrong. God is very clear. God's word in his commandments is very clear. Are there some things we don't understand? Absolutely. That should not surprise us. He is God. We are not. But most of his commandments are very clear. It's not God who is unclear. It is we who are unwilling. We who have been tainted by sin because we will rationalize our little selves into any sin. Go to Nineveh and preach. God's command is very clear. And yet we have man rebelling against God's clear commandment. That's our final point today, that God's great grace is extended even in and through man's rebellion. Verses 3 and 4. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Is there any doubt about what Jonah is doing? We are not three verses into this story when we see the darkness of man's heart twice revealed. In Nineveh, as we've already mentioned, their wickedness, their perversity, not specified. And then we see God's chosen prophet rebelling against God. He flees. He goes the wrong way. So instead of going to Burke Burnett, he's going to Henrietta. And he's going past Henrietta all the way to DFW to get on a plane. But he's going to get on a boat. And he's going to go to Tarshish. Tarshish was near the Straits of Gibraltar. It was as far across the Mediterranean Sea as you could get. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22, it states that a round trip from Tarshish back to deliver goods or to bring goods back would take three years. How, how running away is Jonah? <laughs> He's like, I'm running away from the presence of the Lord. I don't want to do this. God says, go. Jonah says, nope. What about you? We look at this, we go, Jonah, Jonah's given a hard and daunting task. He's got to walk for a month to get to this place. And then he's, he's, not, he's not bringing them sunshine and lollipops. He is bringing them doom and gloom. Okay, I am to stand opposed to this great city. So we get that. Wow, that'd be really hard. But 
as God has commanded Jonah, God has commanded us. And saint, what command of God makes you run? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Husbands, I'll make it pointed. David, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Joe, live with your wife with understanding, showing honor to the woman. Mary, put away falsehood. Beatrice, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Cat, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness. Elizabeth, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Christina, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Jerry, flee youthful passions. I'm just calling these out. I'm not singling in. So. I haven't researched your, your Facebook histories or anything like that. So. Keith, love your neighbor as yourself. Amira, do all to the glory of God. Saints, at WFBC, Jared, honor the emperor. Oh, man. That's, just, that's just a few. <laughs> that's just a few of the commands that are absolutely clear. Is any of those unclear? They're not. We know what they say. Sorry, I didn't get to you, Blake. I'll, I'll find something. But at the same time, as Christians, we're going to back, you know, back off. There is now, now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm like, I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. We know, and we don't want to be disqualified. But God's word makes plain. We looked at it yesterday in our men's study. If I do not fight against sin, if I live satisfying the appetites of my flesh instead of battling against sin. Where do I stand before God? If the spirit is in me, I will fight against my sin. If I have no fight in me, I have to wonder where do I stand? I must be, I must be in a perennial fight against my sinful nature through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't do it by myself. If I am living resistant to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his word, if I am living disobedient to the word of God and my regular vector is toward Tarshish and not the obedience of Nineveh, then I might have to consider if I'm deluding myself in my walk with Christ. Have I become an expert at church? Do I know how to go to church and look good? 
Has being a Christian become nothing more to me than another role in a play? Or do I love Christ? Okay, well, I'm not going to Tarshish. Well, neither are you going to Nineveh. Maybe you're not fleeing to Tarshish. Maybe it's not willful disobedience. Maybe you're just inert and not moving. It's not always blatant sin. Sometimes it's just things that entangle us and slow us down, weights. Maybe you've let bad habits sap your joy in Christ or hinder your walking with the Holy Spirit. Work. Oh, let me do two or three more hours at work or four. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll go home early. Maybe I'll just sit at work and play Donkey Kong or whatever we do on our phones now or watch another video. Do I rob my employer? Am I a workaholic? What do I do with my free time? We've all got it. But isn't that a lie right there? My free time. It's mine. Whose is it? It's God's. And he has given it to you 24 hours in the day. And you are a steward of that time. What do you do with your time that he has given you. Well, I'm not at work, so it's my free time. How are you investing your time? Husbands, how are you investing in your wife? Parents, how am I discipling and training up my children? How's my spiritual fitness? We hammer this here. It's on the wall. I cannot grow apart from God's word. Well, you know, I'll get to that. I've always wanted to read through the Bible, maybe next year. So here I sit in Lebo Hamak. I'm not going to Tarshish, but I'm not going to Nineveh either. When's the last time you prayed for me by name? Throw it back at me. When's the last time I prayed for you by name? Am I exercising my gifts that God has given me in the church for the church? Am I striving? Am I laboring to build you up in Christ? Are you laboring to build me up in Christ? How? With a text, with praying, you know? Can you name, here's another thing, can you name three lost people that you know? Can you name three lost people? And I don't mean three lost people that are 2,000 miles away. I mean three lost people that you bump into day by day. It may simply be the manager at Market Street. Okay, I know that guy. I say, hi, hey, Bob. Do you pray for them? Do you speak to them? Do you develop a relationship with them? Do you get to know them? Okay, we're not four verses into the story. 
when we see not only the troubling darkness of the human heart toward God, but we also see the blinding grace of God that contrasts the darkness of the human heart. What is God's grace toward Nineveh? He's sending them a prophet that they don't deserve from a land far away. But how is God's grace poured out on Jonah? He sends a storm. Verse 4. He paid the fare, or disregard, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. God's grace in a storm. If, if God wanted to punish, just punish Jonah, he could have popped an aneurysm and Jonah would have fallen down dead. Okay, let's get somebody else to do this thing. But in God's grace, we see our wickedness even more starkly. As he is gracious to us, it's like, why have you not smote me a hundred years ago? For the darkness of my heart. Against our wickedness, God's grace is just all the more breathtaking. To what extent will God go to cultivate in your life what he desires to cultivate? He sends a storm for Jonah to help him be the man God wants him to be. Moses, 40 years in the wilderness. Go on, bye-bye. I'll get to you later. Actually, no. He's getting to him as he's dealing with sheep and growing a family. Jonah gets a storm. Consider Romans 8, verse 32. Jeremy's read it here recently. I'm going to go back to it. He who did not spare his own son, he who, who put his son on the cross for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? This is just a few verses after God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purposes. All things in both of these. What all things? Suffering. If God is going to put his son on the cross for your good, might he put you in a storm for somebody else's good? Might your suffering be for God's glory somewhere that you can't even imagine? And that's what we see fleshed out in John chapter 11 in the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Mary and Martha send word, hey, Lazarus is sick. Jesus goes, great, and stays where he is two more days. And Lazarus dies. And Jesus tells his disciples, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through this. When he finally rolls into town and Martha meets him and Lazarus is dead and buried, 
And she laments to him, if you had been here, he would not have died. Jesus says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see not Lazarus raised to life, you would see the glory of God. Lazarus is about to be raised to life. That's a great and wonderful thing. But it is the glory of God that is manifest in this. And this is the tasking that he has called each of us to, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether he puts you in the crucible, whether he puts you on the mountaintop, whether he puts you in the storm, whether he puts you in suffering and grief and poverty and disease, do all to the glory of God. God disciplines those that he loves for his glory, that they might know his glory. And he sends the storm. Now think of this. God sends the storm. Jonah is disobedient. Who suffers? Jonah and the sailors. And possibly the sailor's family if the sailors perish. And the owner of the ship and the cargo and the people who are supposed to get the stuff. Our sin has consequences. We'll talk about that more next week. It doesn't just affect us. We might think it does, but it doesn't. When the storms come in our lives, I pray that we would not hate them. Oftentimes we do. We just hate it. We don't like it. And we miss the grace of God behind the storm. What is the sense? I don't see it. Will I trust God's great and amazing grace? So as we go forward over this next month, my hope is that we will grow, each one of us, just in the nourishing and amazing oceanic grace of God. That we will see his grace to us as believers, despite our still corrupt deeds against him. That he will show his grace to the lost, through us and truly that we would desire to share the joys of that grace to any who will hear about our savior that when the storms of life come upon us that we won't second guess God or maybe even flog ourselves oh it's all my sin no but that we would see God's grace if there is sin to repent of that but that we would nuzzle under the protection of his wing in the midst of the storm, our heavenly father and trust his good purpose and plan. Even when I can't see three feet in front of my face. So let me finally just call you to consider the obedience that God is calling you to. What Nineveh is he asking you to go to? I'm not asking you to be a missionary or anything like that, but simple commands, all those that I read out. What is he calling you to do that you don't, oh, I don't want to do that? What is he telling you, don't do that? And still you go, well, and you're just sitting there in Lebo Hamath, not doing anything. Let me encourage you today to relent 
If God is pushing on you, disciplining you, relent, give in, let go. Stop it. Repent of your sin. Repent of your rebellion. Repent of your inertia and your stubborn heart and go where God has called you to go. Do what God has called you to do. Let's pray. God, it breaks my heart to see a prophet run from your commands. It breaks my heart even more because I feel like I'm staring in a mirror. God, I want a desire to know you. I desire you to be my all and my beauty and not the things of this world. Oh God, I desire that for my brothers and sisters here that we would hate our treason, that we would hate our rebellion, that we would stop making excuses for what you have clearly commanded us to do and to be. God, the world is so dark. Our desire is to shine like stars in the heaven, not with our own light, but with your glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, we beg that you would do this good work. In Jesus' name, amen.